and only Dr. Merrill Nass, who just asked me how come I didn't talk a lot when I had on Malone, McCullough, and Desmet, because they, those were three geniuses discussing, and I simply put them together. So I decided I wasn't going to bring the average IQ down by opening my mouth. But Dr. Nass has been on here twice before. We've talked about everything from COVID to robot armies and AI. And um, today, because uh, there was an article that I saw Dr. Malone not tweet, because he has been permanently banned from Twitter, but put on his getter uh, about you, and it was about your uh, license being temporarily revoked for prescribing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, as well as, quote, spreading misinformation online. But the first two are things that, as you said, um, emergency use or emergency law by the state governor says that you cannot prescribe uh, hydroxychloroquine until after the patient is confirmed to have COVID, and you said you followed those rules, but here we have you, a Hippocratic oath-upholding physician, doing your duty, and you are being struck down, and they're trying to make an example of you to scare other physicians out of acting as they should, again, driving everyone towards these bottlenecks of taking these experimental mRNA vaccines. But, Dr. Ness, please introduce yourself to everybody listening. Hey. Well, um, I was a doctor, or I am a doctor, but I had a license until about a week ago. Um, And I've been practicing 41 years. I'm an internist, and I'm interested in complex illnesses, um, difficult to diagnose illnesses, chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic Lyme disease, fibromyalgia, Gulf War syndrome, etc., And since COVID came around, I have been particularly interested in the um, approaches, uh, good approaches to COVID for in every way. So from uh, protecting yourself and ventilation to what what masks work and if they work and how to use them uh, to all the drugs and the vaccines. And I've looked into all of that, tried to provide information on my blog and to patients, and I've treated a whole lot of COVID. So kind of the the two things that we just touched on are experimental use authorization for the mRNA vaccines, and then as well as an emergency law that the governor signed in to say that you can't take hydroxychloroquine prophylactically. What is kind of the, the deeper theme we're seeing here? Maybe not the specifics of an mRNA vaccine or the use of hydroxychloroquine, but are we seeing the, the shifting of the Overton window to where we are accepting government emergency kind of snap call, no vote, this is the new, the, the king has decreed it. Are we seeing that slowly come in and is it going to continue? Is it going to get worse before it gets better? What do you see in your crystal ball? Tommy, I thank you for that because you and I often think alike and uh, you hit the nail on the head. What has happened is uh, basically under, under a, one could say under the guise of a pandemic or because of a pandemic um, and because of this specter of pandemics, laws were passed about a dozen years ago to 15 years ago Um, After 9-11 and after the anthrax letters, laws were passed that created situations in emergency, in designated emergencies in the United States 
where the rule of law no longer mattered and state government officials and federal officials were granted powers that they didn't have before to um, rule on many aspects of our lives. So as long as you could declare an emergency and, and state, so the CDC created a model emergency health powers act. They paid Lawrence Gostin, I don't know, more than half a million dollars to write a bill and then take it around to states and try to get people to legislatures to go along with it and vote in versions of it in just about every state. So once you trigger the emergency, once that lever gets pushed, then all these new powers accrue to health officers or governors or whoever else has been designated. And these people then can issue orders that have basically the force of law, even though no law was passed. And in the case of this pandemic, um, most of the legislatures stopped meeting and the governor basically took over as, as the... Um, not really the dictator, but but the sole ruler of the state. And the governor said when you wore masks and when you socially distanced and when you could, which stores could open and close, et cetera. Um, these are really enormous powers. And I think when the laws were passed, um, probably the legislators had no idea what sort of... Um, how they would be used, you know, what sort of um, changes in the society could be, um, we could devolve into as a result of these powers. Anyway, under the emergency rules, the governor decided back in March of 2020 that hydroxychloroquine could be used for acute cases of COVID, but not for prevention. And the justification for that at the time was that doctors were prescribing it for themselves and their families for COVID and it would reduce the stockpile for people who really needed it because supposedly it wasn't proved. We didn't know if it was going to work and therefore um, you needed clinical trials before doctors started using it in patients and therefore doctors had no business prescribing it for themselves or anyone else. Um, the other excuse was that it might kill you, you know, dangerous drug. Well, it, it can kill you if you overdose someone on it. Of course, any drug can kill you if you overdose someone on it. But on water. yes, you can overdose on a couple of gallons of water if you drink them too quickly. But watch that. That's, cat. <laughs> that's why I don't open when you ask, how come you don't open your mouth? You're giving this beautiful monologue. And I'm like, if you drink too much water, your brain will explode. That's why I don't <laughs> open my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, hydroxychloroquine was an over the counter drug in most of the world. Um, until the pandemic, when countries started to clamp down on it and make it hard to get. In many states, you could not get hydroxychloroquine unless you were for COVID, unless you were hospitalized or unless you had had a positive test in New Jersey. Um, different rules were put into place by different leaders at the state level. It's unclear why this happened. It all happened at once. The end of March, beginning of April, um, about 30 states put in restrictions uh, on the use of the chloroquine drugs. Uh, both Republican and Democrat run states, not all. 
Um, so anyway, in my state, ever since then, this regulation has been in place. Uh, I, I call it a regulation, but I'm not sure what you should call it. You know, it's basically a, a draconian, um, I don't know, a statement that a, that a person in authority had the right to impose on the 1.3 million people of Maine. That here's a licensed drug. It's a very safe drug when used correctly. Um, it's, to, it's not over the counter in Maine. It can be prescribed by doctors with a prescription, dispensed by pharmacists, as has been, you know, it's been around for over 40 years. Um, I think we know how to use it by now. There are no black box warnings on it. It's, it's a normal drug. In fact, it's on the WHO list of essential medications. And it is used by, you know, hundreds of thousands of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus daily. And it's used for, to prevent malaria and, and to treat malaria in some circumstances. And I've taken the drug for malaria and I've treated a large number, well over 100 Lyme patients with it um, in combination with other medications. So anyway, you have a drug and suddenly all the... Let me go back a little bit. In 2004, a group in Europe published a paper. This was, So SARS-1 was this uh, dread virus that had come out of nowhere. No one had, that disease did not exist before 2002. And it appeared in China and spread through um, Southeast Asia and also was in Canada. And there were 8,000 cases and a about 10% mortality rate. And a lot of people who died were doctors and nurses. It was spreading in the hospitals. Um, and so this was really a dread disease. It was known uh, as a potential biological warfare agent. Um, you know, 10% mortality is really, really high for, for anything. Smallpox variola major had about a 30% mortality, right? That's an incredibly dread disease. Um, influenza, it's no more than one in a thousand and probably a lot less because that's, a, that's an estimated number. Um, measles was about one in 10,000 before we had ICUs, you know, in 1950. Um, about one in 10,000 people died of, children died of measles. So Could, anyway, to, one, one in 10 is big. To, Dr. So Hester, the, to interrupt, could, sorry, could you clarify what is a dread? Does it mean, unless it just went over my head. What is it called? A I'm dread? sorry, SARS, it, SARS. No, I said dread, D-R-E-A-D. Oh, like um, a dreaded. Yes. Oh, okay. I dread. wasn't sure if there was like an actual medical term. I was like, I've never heard of dread. Like, sorry. Is, no, no, you're fine. Sorry, go on. Um. So SARS appears, and it's a big deal. And Fauci starts spending $50 million a year for, for certain years to study it. And a lot of people are studying it, and it, and it, it disappeared. So in, it came in 2002, and in 2003, it disappeared off the face of the earth. But it was still in labs, <clears throat> and there were about half a dozen lab escapes over the succeeding several years. And everybody wanted to know how to treat it. Of course, what do you do when you have a dread disease appear? You look for repurposing of drugs, drugs you already have that may be effective. So a group in Europe in 2004 published a paper 
that chloroquine drugs at the same doses used for malaria, known, safe, you know, doses that hundreds of millions of people have used, um, are killing SARS in the test tube. The CDC repeated a similar study a year later in 2005. And then about 2012, another similar disease, MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, <clears throat> comes along and appears mostly in, in uh, Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula, but few cases elsewhere. And so, of course, people look for repurposed drugs and they find that chloroquine drugs, again, are very effective against MERS in the test tube. And Fauci's NIAID, his agency, published a paper on that. And so did a group in Europe. So that by the time SARS-2 came, these are all coronaviruses, came along, the Chinese immediately knew to try out the chloroquine drugs, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and there are a few others. Um, and they had 20 clinical trials looking at these drugs at the beginning of the SARS-2 epidemic in China. So when... Uh, you know, COVID came here, SARS-2 is the virus, SARS-CoV-2, um, that causes the disease COVID. Of course, anybody who looked it up and said, well, how do they treat SARS-1 would have found that the chloroquine drugs were likely to be effective against this cousin of SARS-1. And Fauci had to have known that since his agency had done one of the studies. And the CDC had to have known that because they did one of the studies, okay? And Canadian scientists did the study with the CDC, so they also had to have known, Canadian government scientists. So a lot of people knew. And, and what did they do? Did they make it available to the public? Well, some people tried. Peter Navarro, Trump's uh, trade ambassador, I think, went around and to different companies that made generic versions of uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine and solicited donations. And he got about 60 million tablets donated to the U.S. government for free to treat COVID. And they wound up in the national strategic stockpile. And two officials of the U.S. government, one being Janet Woodcock, who was the acting director of FDA, and the other being Rick Bright, who is the director of BARDA, which is a sub-agency for doing work on biological threats. So they dole out about one and a half or one, one to one and a half billion dollars a year um, to do research and produce products for biological threats. The two of them decided that this these 60 million pills, instead of making them available to the public, would be restricted by issuing an emergency use authorization. Now, they fooled the country. Chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine were both licensed drugs that could be freely prescribed and dispensed by pharmacies. And all of that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine within normal commerce, all of it that came from manufacturers through distributors to drugstores, had nothing to do with any EUA. 
It wasn't emergencies. It was fully licensed. Okay. It was only this donated stockpile, some of which was expired and some of which was made in Pakistan, you know, not necessarily under the best conditions. It was only that, you know, basket of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine that had an EUA placed on it because it hadn't, it was not made under, you know, FDA approved conditions. And what Bright and um, Woodcock did was to fool the public and the doctors and the pharmacists and, and make everybody think that all of the chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine in the U.S. was under emergency use authorization and could no longer be, be freely used any way doctors and patients desired, okay? So that happened in, I think, the end of March, if I remember correctly. And so the restriction placed on the EUA pills was that they could only be used for hospitalized patients. Now that was a, basically, in my opinion, a crime because the drug doesn't work. By the time you're hospitalized, you've generally been sick for about 10 to 14 days and it's too late for the drug to work. You're not growing any virus anymore. The virus has been in your system, has replicated for a week or 10 days and is gone. And now at the time you need to be hospitalized, you're dealing with an inflammatory autoimmune cytokine storm illness with that needs to be treated completely differently than by killing virus. It needs to be treated with immune suppressants and, you know, things to prevent blood clotting, etc. cetera. Um, so by restricting the drug to hospitalized patients, they made sure it was dispensed in a way where it was not going to be useful and it would look like it didn't work for this disease. And doctors didn't know what was going on. They'd never heard of EUAs before. Um, and they just went along with it. Now, I, I, I knew about EUAs because anthrax, when anthrax, I worked with a group that brought a lawsuit about the license of anthrax vaccine. We got a judge to remove the license. And, and within weeks, um, the federal government had slapped an emergency use authorization on anthrax vaccine so it could still be used for soldiers even without a license. And then they tried to mandate it. And then we went back to court and the judge told them, you cannot mandate an experimental product. So, so that's basically all the case law on the mandating of EUAs. There's no other case that's been brought in the United States. And, and that's how it sits. Um, EUAs are experimental products. There's no question about that because... Anything that is not a licensed product is defined in U.S. law as experimental. Whether it's used in, in an experiment or whether you're just giving it to people because you think it works and you're not collecting data, it doesn't matter. It's still, by definition, experimental. Now, if it's experimental, that means the Nuremberg Code applies. You can't force people to be experimental subjects. And federal law says the same thing. So there you have it. Um, we have these now vaccines for COVID and all the vaccine available in the United States, despite what President Biden or Janet Woodcock would have you believe. And we know Janet Woodcock is not the most uh, reliable source. 
Um, she is still the acting director of the FDA. She's due to leave the position any moment. She's had her year as acting director. She can't do it any longer by law. But they, ha- they haven't uh, approved um, a, the commissioner, another commissioner yet. Um, so anyway, what we have now is an FDA under Janet Woodcock that gave a license to one vaccine for COVID, which was the Pfizer vaccine, only for adults, only for the first two doses, not for any boosters. And then Pfizer, because by giving it a license, that meant the licensed vaccine would have normal liability. Pfizer said, we're not making it available in the United States until you use up the EUA product, the emergency use authorized product, which for which Pfizer has no liability. You can't sue anybody if you get injured or killed from, from a vaccine. So basically, all the vaccines, the Moderna, the J&J, which is also called Janssen, and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines in the United States are that are available. The only ones you can get right now are all emergency use authorized. Every one of them is experimental. And by law, they cannot be mandated. The way the Biden administration pushed out its mandates was by telling the FDA to license one of them, telling the world the COVID vaccine is now licensed. And under the guise of licensure, even though you cannot get a licensed vaccine in the United States, all these mandates were put into place. And again, the American public was fooled, just like they were fooled with hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. So right now we are being governed under a system of smoke and mirrors. And the government is is the one that's basically breaking the law. So, I'll let you talk, Dami. No, that was that was wonderful. That was I love listening to you. So there's <clears throat> uh, Dr. Keith Rose uh, brought that up uh, a couple months ago when I had him on, but so it was it's a it's a they're pulling a what is it a, a bait and switch. They Correct. technically the FDA approved Comirnaty, but Comirnaty is not available in the U.S. So it is an FDA approved. Uh, it is an FDA approved. Xi Jinping gives Tommy's podcast a thumbs up. It's now a Xi Jinping approved podcast, but no one behind the Great Firewall of China can access it. But it's now approved. <laughs> so it's Comirnaty is approved by the FDA. Sure, that's a fact. You can't get that here. Right. So now FDA approves Pfizer's vaccine, which technically it did, but not the same one that's now being mandated. So so where do we go from here? I mean, sure, so now we can pull the now we can kind of pull the mask off and go, ha, it was a bait and switch. How does that yes. help how does that help the average person? average person because they're still masquerading and doing things like suspending your license or banning Dr. Malone or people are losing their jobs or you know, a bunch of truckers, I believe, are not, I think a week ago today, are now losing their jobs for not getting this vaccine. But if it's experimental under the guise of uh, being approved as Cromenati and they can't mandate these things, beautiful logic, how does it actually apply to individuals' li- lives 
like those losing their jobs or like you getting your license revoked. And I know that that's, right. that's not, you know, that's the billion dollar question. So not to throw that on you, but you know, in your crystal ball, what is your best educated guesstimate? Well, I think the people who right now are most subject to the mandate as a class are the healthcare workers. Since the Supreme Court chose to completely avoid this issue of the legality and emergency use and mandates, and that the Supreme Court also chose to completely bypass the question of whether the vaccine is even effective anymore against Omicron, okay? So that that has not been adjudicated by the Supreme Court. So don't think that, you know, all, all your possible ways of getting relief from this terrible situation of mandates have, have gone by. They haven't yet. This can still, uh, still there are cases that can go up to the Supreme Court on the mandates. I would say that, you know, the best thing is for lots of healthcare workers to get together and bring a lawsuit. I mean, if they've lost their jobs, they deserve to be reinstated and get back pay. It has happened before, very rarely, that nurses who brought suit against hospitals that let them go because they refused a vaccine when they had a valid reason to refuse, um, they had to be reinstated with back pay. So I would say, you know, for a group to come together and mount a lawsuit would be a very good thing. Um, I'm sure the federal government would be trembling in their boots if that happened. Um, the pro- you know, what the reason we don't have justice in the United States is because mounting legal cases is so expensive. You know, nobody can do it because you look, it could be half a million, a million more. Um, how many, you know, nurses have a million dollars to throw away at a court case and they might lose? Um, they don't. But when, you know, a thousand or a hundred thousand get together, then it becomes much less burdensome and you can do it. So that is one thing I would recommend. Um, and, you, and you need people who've been harmed. You have to have standing in order to bring these cases. So, so those people who have had to lose their jobs are exactly the right ones who can, can bring a lawsuit and try to turn some of this around. In the larger picture, I think what we have to do is really get rid of emergency rules. These emergency laws um, that were brought into being after 9-11 need to go away because we've seen, you know, we've had a standing emergency now for two years. Where's the emergency? You know, it's been... Um, applied, you know, very, not judiciously, but very broadly, you know, all the Walmarts can stay open, but the, you know, the mom and pop stores have to close, even though they have better ventilation than the Walmart, you know, what's that about? Why did that happen? Who made that ruling? Who told them to make it? Why did they make it? You know, where is this stuff coming from? It's it's not logical. Um, is money changing hands? That's that's a big question. Um, you know, there's so many different oh, oh, these children that are forced to wear masks in school. Turns out that in many cases, the school boards have been offered large sums of money, like more than a thousand dollars per student. Um, through federal grants, but contingent upon them imposing mask mandates. You know, where did that come from? The federal government 
has given $190 billion to public schools in the United States. What are the other strings that are attached to that money? So these are, you know, these are things we need to investigate and we need to get this stuff sorted out quickly. Unfortunately, you know, we have very few legislators who um, want to, you know, rattle, uh, rattle the cage. I think once it hits a critical mass, and I know I've been saying that for a year, but I think once it hits a critical mass, we will see something happen. It's it's creeping into too many people's everyday lives, right? It's very easy to see something when the economy's going well and everyday life is hunky dory and you see someone saying, We need to stop this and you're like, Yeah, yeah, you know, I get it. You know, Ed Snowden came out and was like, These this Patriot Act is being abused, but you know, it's like, yeah, but you know, I'm going to spring break tomorrow. You, you don't really think about it, but it's kind of, it's no longer a, a dude on a webcam in Moscow talking about how our freedoms are being taken away. It's now in your face. It's your friends, your cousins, your neighbors. Um, I believe it will. I mean, you know, I look at it optimistically because we're already seeing nurses who were fired for not getting the vaccine mandate be rehired at a higher salary. And that was, it's maybe been two, three months. So I do think the tide is turning, which is an arrogant thing for someone like me, who is not affected by this, to say to someone like you, who is affected by this, but I do believe it will move forward. And if you ask me for my sources or my citations, I don't have any. But I I do feel that way with every... You know, it, it's kind of like driving variants, right? Overusing vaccinations or overusing certain antiseptics, right? That's why you get more and more, uh, you know, lethal viruses in hospital settings because they've been, you've applied so much ev- uh, evolutionary pressure that they have to become lethal to survive. They're kind of doing that now by pushing, by pushing down the, the vaccine that is censorship onto YouTube, onto Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, whatever, you are now, I mean, you can quite literally look at the growth percentages of something like Rumble or BitChute or Odyssey or Spotify. You can see these other avenues where it is popping up. You have guys like Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough who a year ago were just talking about protocols. And now you see them tweeting about like BlackRock and the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. And it's like, you, hey, y'all did that. You Dr. Malone, when he was first on this podcast, episode 495, was very like, let's talk about the science, let's talk about the lipid nanoparticles. And he came on a week and a half or two weeks ago, episode 653. He was like, listen, it's a global conspiracy. They're trying to shut us all up. This is global totalitarianism. We can either have the great... They're pushing these sort of radical variants of free speech. And the more they do it, like vaccination or like using... Uh, disinfectants, you either have to kill it all outright with like a blowtorch and like ethanol, or you're simply going to make things that are even more resilient that you can't kill. That's kind of where I look at it, is I do see that meta theme to where I just want to talk about UFOs and robot armies and Atlantis and whatever. But now the very fact that I've been banned from YouTube that's just the arrogant, hard-headed guy in me that's like, now I'm going to interview every one of these doctors. Now that's exactly what I'm going to do. I saw Dr. Malone tweet or get, whatever you call it, that article about you. 
tweet, I text you immediately. Can we do an episode this week? You were like, yes, 30 minutes. And I was like, I can't do it today. <laughs> In a couple of days, you want to do it. But do you see what I mean? Like, it's moving yeah. forward and it's but i thought you were somebody else yeah remember? yeah regardless <laughs> i was i was like i was like okay go get it but like regardless you see these things moving and these things happening that and i know no, well more... rather than talk about that tommy sure. i think you know it's more valuable for the audience to hear for example the kinds of material that i put in my original article on the suppression of hydroxychloroquine mm-hmm. so that that article, which I wrote in June of 2020, at the time talked about 27 different ways hydroxychloroquine had been suppressed in the United States and in some other countries. And then subsequently, I added 30 more ways hydroxy the use of hydroxychloroquine for COVID had been suppressed. It's a really quite effective drug when used in the first week of illness. <clears throat> you know, it reduces... Uh, the endpoints, endpoints in different studies, maybe hospitalizations, maybe deaths, you know, maybe progression of disease. They're all different endpoints. But anyway, it can reduce those negative endpoints by about two thirds. And that's huge. And if you use multiple drugs, you can have even more of an impact. And it's cheap and it's available. And you do have to check what other drugs people are on. You can't just throw it into a mix of other medications. There are, you know, warnings about contraindications and drug interactions. But if you act like a doctor and check those things, you can safely use this drug and probably avoid most of most of the deaths and most of the severe injuries and the long COVID, probably. That's what we think. Of course, you know, we don't have a huge number of people that have done it. We There was supposed to be a large clinical trial of early treatment of hydroxychloroquine in the United States, NIAID. Fauci was supposed to pay for it. He started enrolling people in May of 2020, and in June, he shut it down after they had enrolled 20 people of a proposed 2,000 subjects that were going to find out whether this stuff worked or not, Fauci shut down the trial because it worked. That's a huge problem. People can look it up. You can see they had they had no excuse to shut it down. The excuse was, we couldn't enroll enough people. Nobody was interested in testing a drug, you know, for COVID when there were no other drugs available in, in May of 2020. Nobody wanted to try hydroxychloroquine. Come on. But people were desperate to get it, you know, on the black market any way they could. But Fauci said he couldn't get enough people to join the trial. So in a month, he shut it down. Um, they're the second largest producer of hydroxychloroquine active pharma. It's called active pharmaceutical ingredient in the world is in Taiwan. And Christmas... 2020, that factory exploded. Um, Hydroxychloroquine was an over-the-counter drug in France. And right before the pandemic started, France initiated procedures to stop it from being an over-the-counter drug and make it a prescription drug, which um, went through in very beginning of 2020, like January or February. And Shortly after that, 
the entire stockpile of hydroxychloroquine in Paris in a government pharmaceutical warehouse disappeared, supposedly stolen or something happened to it. Um, many, there was a very um, impactful article in The Lancet published May 22nd, 2020, mm-hmm. claiming that around the world, they had records on 15,000 COVID patients in hospitals who were treated with hydroxychloroquine and had a 30 or 35% higher death rate. And as a result of that paper, which was broadcast all over the world, everybody said, this is a drug that kills. Don't touch it. No matter what you do, stay away from hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. 13 days later, the paper was retracted because it was a complete fabrication. There was no database. The numbers were completely came out of thin air. But all, pretty much all the clinical trials that were investigating hydroxychloroquine at the time were shut down when that paper came out. Shut down the next day after that paper was published in a coordinated effort in many countries to stop research into the benefits of hydroxychloroquine. So anyway, a lot of things happened. Um, and now still, it's, it's almost two years later. And the uh, main medical board doesn't think it works and uh, thinks it's a bad thing to prescribe it for COVID. And what else have they got for early treatment of COVID? Well, Merck has a drug, just just got an emergency use authorization. It's not licensed. It's supposedly 30% effective and it can cause mutations in you. Um, okay. And the U.S. government spent over a billion dollars to buy that many thousands, you know, about over a million doses of this Merck drug that's 30% effective. Um, and now there's a Pfizer drug, and that one is probably more effective. Um, it's also very expensive, about $500 for a course, unlike hydroxychloroquine, which if you buy it in a third world country is less than a dollar for a course. The Pfizer drug is in very short supply. We have monoclonal antibodies, but almost all of them don't work against Omicron. There's only one that was in widespread use, citrovimab, that works against Omicron. Um, Federal government has snatched that one up so that they can distribute it to the people most in need. Um, So you can't get a monoclonal antibody that works for the vast majority of people now. But you, you could... You know, if we were, if it were freely available, get hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, but through a series of veiled threats to pharmacists and doctors, almost nobody will prescribe it and almost nobody will dispense it because they're afraid they will be investigated if they do, like me. So here we are, you know, uh, medical care via veiled threats and uh, government gone awry. Because they care for us. It's for our own good. It's that one woman that said, in my opinion, the vaccine is love. But, you know, an extension of that logic is, well, mandated and coerced love. That's forced love. It sounds a lot like rape. I, I mm-hmm. mean, it's just it's kind of the logical extension of that. With all of the, Are you going to say something? Well, I was going to say, the thing about a vaccine is you're bypassing all the bodies protections. You know, if you eat something, you have you have a gut that is designed to decide what can come in and what has to stay out. But when you inject 
all of that is gone and you can't take it out. It's there forever. And with the messenger RNA vaccines, you, there's no off switch. You're, te- you're giving your body the instructions to start making proteins, which happen to be toxic. I mean, that's well demonstrated that the um, spike protein ca- causes blood clots, you know, activates platelets to cause clotting and, and does other things that are not helpful to the body, as well as um, cause, you know, antibodies to be formed. And uh, once you inject this, there's no way to stop your body making those proteins. You don't know how long they're going to make it. You're going to make it for. Certainly the, the spike protein was found in the blood, uh, at a Harvard study, they looked for two weeks. They found in one or two patients, still there was spike protein for two weeks later. That wasn't predicted to happen. It wasn't supposed to happen. Nobody looked before these vaccines were put on the market. So you actually don't know what dose anybody's getting. So I might inject it into you and you might, your body, you know, may just make a little bit of it but you can inject it into me and I might be making it months down the road. I had on a Dr. Auditi Bargava, the head of MRNA research at UCSF. And she actually went through and did like a, like a two hour like PowerPoint on my podcast, but talk specifically about that. I think it was episode 642, I think going in and showing the different sizes of the lipid nanoparticles and how the, amount of mRNA you got could be off by like one or even two orders of magnitude. So it's really, I mean, it's either, hey, it might be a grenade, it might be an A-bomb. Like, it's one of them. Exactly. It'll, it'll probably work. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I, I don't know, man. If you're trying to like blow out a mountain path to put in a highway, you want to know if you have dynamite or a thermonuclear weapon. Like, but that's yeah. what she talked about. She thinks that's where a lot of, a lot of the uh, catastrophic side effects are coming from. Well, it, it just makes sense. The other thing is that the FDA is required to ascertain the potency of every drug and vaccine, but they can't ascertain the potency of these messenger RNA vaccines because they don't know how much of the active ingredient you're going to make. You know, you're not injecting people with the spike protein, you're injecting them with instructions. So, you know, one could argue that that none of these vaccines are actually able to be licensed according to FDA's strict standards. But of course, how were they licensed? Again, Janet Woodcock, the same person who has um, been pulling the wool over (laughs) people's eyes um, with these other projects, um, is the one who was the liaison between Operation Warp Speed and the FDA. So she controlled those interactions and she is a person who would have ushered this through licensure. And so whether FDA standards have been, you know, why did FDA go to court and try to prevent the release of its of the licensing documents, which are supposed to enter the public domain when any product is licensed? Why did they ask the, the judge for 75 years to dribble out those documents instead of making them available in a few weeks. I mean, probably they did it because the vaccine was not correct, did not go through proper procedures to be licensed. I mean, that's the most logical explanation. 
where where do we go from here is it do we march down is it a decline into censorship and this is the end of history or is is there a a reckoning is there a is there a silver silver lining from this do we come back and maybe there had to be so much corruption so globally and uniformly exposed that that's the only real way any change would come from this which and i know that's like super 30,000 foot picture but yeah. I feel like we're going one of two paths. As Malone said, it's great reset or great awakening. Which one do you think? Or is it up to us? Do we choose? Look, we, we have a really good constitution. You know, the, the founders figured out a good way to run things. And the problem is, is that we've, we've bypassed the constitution. We've bypassed the Bill of Rights. You know, the First Amendment says freedom of religion. The government cannot abridge freedom of religion. Government cannot abridge freedom of speech. 14th Amendment says states can't abridge it if the feds say it's, you've got, if the feds say this is your right, the states can't take it away. And I would argue that in my case, the state is trying to take away my free speech. But I would also argue that all the, you know, most of the states tried to take away freedom of religion. And you know, if we go back to the Constitution and simply obey it, you know, if we don't allow the government to break the law, <clears throat> everything could could potentially be fixed. What we have to do is take the law seriously. And, you know, we have to clean house. You know, you have to get rid of the Janet Woodcocks. You have to get rid of the Rick Brights. We have a bunch of bureaucrats who have figured out, you know, the weasel ways to get around the laws, you know, how, and to, uh, you know, we have a whole system that is basically run by industry and we can fix it if we want to, but we, you know, when you, when it's so expensive to run for office, basically everybody has already been bought and sold before they ever get into office. And that's happening even at the state level. So we have to figure out a different way to finance elections. Um, and, you know, maybe we have to impose term limits. You know, I'm not sure. That probably needs to be done in all states because the ones, you know, that don't impose term limits will have an advantage in terms of seniority in Congress. Their people will, will get the um, chairmanships, which have a lot of power. I mean, there's plenty that can be done. If the, if the people say, that's it, we've had enough, you know, the, the people have not been told by the mass media what's really going on. And I think, you know, if we have, we have to wrest the mass media from industry, we probably have to break up industry, you know, new, a new antitrust um, regime, but it's fixable and the, the pe- people are good. People want what's good for themselves and other people. There's only a small number of criminals. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, the, the criminals are running the show. Yeah. No, I, I tend to agree with that wholeheartedly. The vast majority of people are understanding, reasonable people who want a roof over their head, want a safe neighborhood for their kids, you know, an adequately good paying job. 
it's a tiny number of demons that kind of ruin the whole thing, which is which is why I'm optimistic. I don't think it's that they're outweighing us 51-49. I think it's 99.999. They've just kind of got the, what seems to be an illusion of power, but I think it's all smoke and mirrors. And again, that's why I'm, I'm optimistic is sometimes you need a, a kick in the ass before you start doing what needs to be done. And now I look at it as like, it's now creeping into everyone's everyday lives. We're going to inject your kids. Your doctor can no longer, is no longer going to be your doctor. You're booted from the internet. You can't, you kind of need something like that to touch everyone before there's a, a critical mass of people that actually stand up and make change. Um, for, as we wrap this one up, how can people help you? Dr. Ness? Um, I don't need help. I'm good. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to have to run. Okay. All right. Well, Dr. Nass, I will, uh, I will text you. you this episode once up. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Recording stopped.